0: have uh, the opportunity to open the scriptures go with me if you would to Romans chapter 12 Romans chapter 12 and as you're turning there I'd like to relate to you in fact uh, how the Lord answers prayer we took praises just a moment ago and oftentimes praises are in the form of of answered prayer, how God has answered prayers that we've had. And here at Open Door Bible Baptist Church, I know that you're faithful to pray for your missionaries, but I also know that that's often a difficult task. As I was just uh, speaking with our brother there, you know, you, sometimes you don't even know how to pronounce their names. I can just imagine people praying for us that haven't met us, you know, praying for the the Bob Mach Match Match family, or however they pronounce that, M-A-C-H, and, uh, you know, they're there in Ivory Coast, you know, where's Ivory Coast, is that a country or a territory, and, uh, boy, they're doing something over there, but you don't know for sure exactly what that is, and it's challenging to pray faithfully for your missionaries. When the letters come, you can at least be updated to a certain extent, but still, you know, as we bow our head and as we ask God to work with the missionaries, to help them with their health, to help them with their ministry, to bless what it is that they're doing. Understand that God does answer those prayers, and this particular story is an example of that. If you are here this morning, you saw in the video that in 2002, war broke out in Ivory Coast, and there was a warlike state within the countries, especially in Abidjan and in Bouaké and in Korogo. And that lasted for a number of days, and once that settled out, the country was divided in two. And we had the rebel south, or excuse me, the rebel north, and the government held south. And for a year, we actually kept the, the family in Ghana next door to Ivory Coast, where we felt things were safer, and I would travel in and out of the Ivory Coast each weekend to keep the work going in Bazerville. And then in 2004, we felt that things were safe enough. We went, we brought the family back into Beaufortville, and we were residing there, which is in the far south of the country. The U.S. Embassy had allowed their non-essential personnel to come back into that region as well, and for as best as we could tell, things were going to be fine. And we get into November of 2004. And at first, here in the United States, uh, we had our elections. That was the year that uh, President George W. Bush was up for re-election, and he ran against then-Senator John Kerry. And those elections took place and were completed finally, and a winner was announced. And uh, two or three days later, the president, the then-president of the Ivory Coast, attacked the rebel forces in the north with some military aircraft that he had acquired in the two years from the beginning of the war. And once he made that attack, there were, according to the French, a number of French soldiers that were killed. And so when those aircraft were parked on the tarmac, again, in the the political capital of Yamasukro, French planes came in and bombed all those military aircraft. And the French military began to deploy in Abidjan, commandeering certain sections of the city. The Ivorian population didn't want them to do that. And so you had masses of people in what was now a destabilized Abidjan who were moving to different areas of the city, endeavoring to physically prevent the deployment of the French military there in Abidjan. In addition to that, the the Ivorian military itself was establishing a number of checkpoints throughout the entire city. And what was sure was that any commercial vehicle traveling through the city was going to be stopped and searched, to ensure that that vehicle was not transporting things that it shouldn't be. Now, it was right in the midst of that that we had somebody coming into the airport. And for some strange reason, the airport had not closed. And he was coming in. He was coming in on standby tickets, so he'd already been traveling for a couple days, probably had absolutely no idea whatsoever what was transpiring in the Ivory Coast. And I called the embassy and I asked them, listen, uh, what would you recommend? How should I get to the airport? Is there one way that's going to be safer than another so I can get this guy at the airport? And they said, our advice is that you don't leave your house. And they said, well, you don't understand. This guy's coming in. He doesn't speak French. Uh, He probably has no idea what's happening. And you know that the airport is eventually going to close and I'm going to need to get up there and help them. I'm just wondering which way to go. And they said, you're asking us for our advice, and our advice is that you stay right where you are, that you not go to the airport. In so many words, they were saying, better that one person be at risk than two. And so I thought about that for a bit, and I realized there's no way I can leave him stranded there at the airport because it will close, and once it does close, they'll simply shove him outside. And again, he'd have no way of taking care of himself, no idea of what to do. And so I decided to try to get to the airport to get him, but that it would be too conspicuous to go in my own vehicle. So I dressed up as best I could and I grabbed public transport into Abidjan. And getting into Abidjan, I hailed a taxi. As he pulled over, I said, Hey, listen, uh, I need to get to the airport. How much to get to the airport? He said, There's no way I'm taking you to the airport. All taxis were just kind of servicing their little particular area there and they were refusing to go here, there, or anywhere else, because of the destabilized condition of Abidjan. And so the bidding war began. I said, hey, 20 bucks, you get me there? And he laughed and said, no way. And finally, he says, man, it'd take 100 bucks for me to get you there. And I said, so you'll do it for 100 bucks? And he eventually conceded. And so in the car I got, and we started on our way, what was normally about a 45-minute ride turned into a three-hour ride. As uh, several times along the route, we were stopped at a military checkpoint, and those commandos would come up. We'd show our our documentation, our passports. The driver would show the paperwork for the vehicle. We would all step out of the vehicle. It would be immediately searched, and then we could get back in and continue on. As we would go along, sometimes we'd have to stop because there would just be masses of people, thousands of people that would suddenly pass across the road in front of us, all trying to move to a particular area of Abidjan, again, to impede the deployment of the French military. So it was destabilized. It was uh, very difficult. The French element was definitely out there trying to loot stores and take advantage of the circumstance for their own personal profit. And through all this, we're trying to get over there. And as I'm speaking with this, this driver there in the taxi, he's explaining certain other things to me as well, like all international media is now banned in the country. Because the BBC, Radio France International, others that were there were absolutely pro-rebel. Everybody knew it. You could hear it in their reporting. And so the government had banned them. They were not allowed to be out. They were not allowed to be seen. They certainly were not allowed to be broadcasting. So finally I get to the airport and I get inside and I'm waiting for this guy to come out. And you see the reason why he was coming was because he was going to take video of our ministry to put together our 2005 video presentation. And as he got off the airplane, they had there was no immigration, no customs or anything. It was off the airplane, through the airport, and out the door. And as he came walking out, he's carrying this big metal suitcase. And it suddenly struck me. I said, Don, what do you have in that suitcase? And he says, well, I got my camera in it. And I said, let me see your camera, Don. And he opens up the suitcase, and here he has one of these big shoulder-mount cameras that are used for journalism. And that's what he's going to use to do the video for my presentation. And so suddenly I realized the absolute dilemma that I am in because we have to get this camera from the airport all the way back to Bangerville. That car is going to be searched at least 15 times en route. And what am I going to say about that camera? I have no paperwork for it. I have no explanation other than he's a guy from my mission. That's not going to help me. We're certainly looking at being incarcerated. We will absolutely be taken into custody. Here at a moment of war and destabilization, we're gallivanting around Abishan with a camera? What explanation can we possibly give? And so I him hauled around with Don there for a while and finally just decided we have no other option. We've got to get in a vehicle and we've got to get out of here. We've got to try to get back to Bangerville. So we put his camera in the floorboard and I put my suit coat over it. We put his trunk, his uh, suitcase in the trunk, and off we go. And as we get out of the airport to the first checkpoint, immediately we're stopped. And the commando comes over to the car, and I had our passports up. Yes, uh, we're both Americans. Very favorably to be American at that point. Very bad to be a Frenchman at that point. I had the American passports up, and I said, yes, we're Americans. I'm a missionary in Bangerville, He's a representative from my mission. He just flew in. We're going directly back to Bainesville, and I'm I'm holding my passports up to him. And he's not taking them. And so finally I look up at him, and he's looking down at me, and he says, so you guys are Americans? And I said, yes, sir, we are. You know, in other words, we're not French. He says, well, if you're Americans, then I have just one question for you. I said, yes, sir. He said, are you guys... Republicans or Democrats? Now, as you can imagine, here I am in a situation that is most certainly the most stressful that I have personally experienced. The country has gone back to war. The city's completely destabilized. We have no idea what's going to transpire and, and, and we're definitely in the threat of at least incarceration at that point. And he's asking me my political persuasion and my mind kind of refused to to go along with them, and I remember turning my head and looking out the windshield, and then I kind of looked back and I said, "I'm sorry." And of course, all of this is transpiring in French. He asks me again, "Êtes-vous des républicains ou bien des Are you Republicans or Democrats? And again, I took a deep breath and I said, "Well, that depends on the candidate." Why? And he looks at me and he says. Oh, I love President Bush. I am so glad you guys re-elected him. And I said, I'm sorry? He said, yes, you're president. He is excellent. I love him. I'm glad that you guys re-elected him. And I said, oh, okay. Well, that's good. I'm glad. And he goes on talking just giving all these praises for President Bush. And my head is swimming. Here's a car being searched. Here's one being searched. Here's one being searched. Here's all this destabilization going on. And this guy is talking with me about the re-elections in the United States. Finally, he just hands my passports back and he says, you can go. No search. So we sped out of there and we get about a half kilometer down the road. And here's the next military checkpoint. And again, the commandos out there pulling us right on over to the curb. Walks up. I've already completely forgotten what happened a half kilometer back. I hold up my passports. Again, I say, you know, I'm an American citizen. I'm a missionary. I'm in Bangerville. He's a representative from my mission. He just flew in. We're going directly back to Bangerville." The guy doesn't take him. I pull him back down. I look at him, and he's staring right at me. Big bloodshot eyes. guy had to weigh 300 pounds, not an ounce of fat, staring right down at me. And he says, Bush or Kerry? <laughs> Bush ou Kerry in French? Again, I'm just, this is, this is too surreal, too outside of what I would be expecting. I stutter and I stammer around. And finally, you know, I ask him, well, who do you like? He goes, oh, I love your president. J'aime bien le président Bush. And as as he's talking, I'm beginning to realize what had transpired. Again, this is November 2004, and right, wrong, or indifferent, I'm not taking a political position tonight, but you'll remember that in 2003, President Bush had submitted his Iraq resolution to the U.N. Security Council. uh, France had been adamantly opposed to it, and they had voted it down, and they'd been very vocal about it. President Bush said, fine, he put together his own coalition, and he went on in. And in doing that, in the eyes of the Ivorian military... President Bush had taken his index finger and planted it firmly in Chirac's eye. And they loved it. He was their hero. So as we're pulling out of that second checkpoint with no search, this is finally starting to come into my consciousness and my thinking, and I'm beginning to realize this isn't just two soldiers. This is a general feeling, a general attitude in the Ivorian military. And so we we get about another kilometer down the road. We're yanked off to the side again. Again, the guy comes to the window, and I give him the same spiel, missionary, Bangerville, representative, on our way to Bangerville. But then I kind of smiled and looked at him. I said, hey, what did you think of our elections? Man, they were great. We loved them. Beautiful. And off we go. You know, somewhere along the way, one of these guys wanted to know about the Chads in 2000. All these discussions here about the U.S. elections in the midst of destabilized Abidjan where every other car is being searched, yet in every one of these checkpoints where we were stopped, after talking about the elections, the guy would sir- simply hand the passports back and say, You can go. And in the end, we managed to return all the way back to Banjerville The car had never been searched. The camera had not been found. We had not been incarcerated or anything close to that. The Lord had blessed. And, you know, that's kind of a humorous story. But let me tell you, it is absolutely a true story. And it was not humorous on that day as we were very, very stressed by what was transpiring. But the reason why that happened was because here at the Open Door Bible Baptist Church, probably the Wednesday night before, our name may have come up, or Thursday night, I think we're Thursday night here, or or Sunday night or whatever, somebody might have said something about being with the Mack family, Lord, just help them during this time and bless them. And God took that prayer And he answered it while we had to get from the airport back to the house. And it's an example to you. When you pray for your missionaries, it may seem futile. It may seem difficult. It may seem ignorant in the sense that you really don't know what's transpiring there. But God is taking those prayers and he's absolutely answering them to the benefit of the missionaries. So I beg you, please continue. Please continue to pray for us. Continue to pray for your missionaries because it is absolutely certain that God is answering those prayers. Now, this evening, we're going to the book of uh, Romans, Romans chapter 12, and I would like for us to consider the first two verses there, verse 1 and verse 2. Here the Scriptures say, "...I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service." And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, let's stop immediately and let's determine how do we react to these two verses? Because there's a 100% implication And what Paul is stating here, as far as the sacrifice that we are supposed to be for the Lord Jesus Christ. And our flesh does not like that. And so oftentimes, if we are not careful, when we approach Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we start having a certain resistance that begins to form to these two verses without necessarily realizing it. I remember when I was in ninth grade, we were, I was in a Christian school, and every Wednesday we had chapel. And so throughout the course of a sem- semester, that would be somewhere 14, 15, 16 chapel services every Wednesday. And I assure you, my ninth grade year, at least ten of those chapel services, in at least ten of them, the preacher went to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2. I couldn't believe it. It got to the point towards the end of the semester to where, in my mind, as soon as that bell rings for the end of that class, second hour class, and we're all heading off to chapel, I'm already smarting off in my mind. Ah, yes, here we are, HCS Chapel. With your host, the Stan Nisley, and your guest preacher, another one that knows only Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 from the scriptures. It angered me, to be honest with you, because I was struggling with the concept of sacrifice that we see here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. So let's recognize that to begin with. We do not naturally appreciate what Paul is stating here. And in recognizing that now, we can go ahead and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to open our heart and to allow us to objectively and to clearly understand what it is that he's saying. Paul starts and he says, I beseech you, therefore. This word beseech being a rather strong word. And why is Paul using it here? If we go back and study the book of Romans chapters 1 all the way through to the end of chapter 11, we see that Paul gives us some tremendous doctrine. We see soteriology as well as many other doctrines that are explained and expressed in chapters 1 to 11. And now that he's getting to chapter 12, he's making an application of those doctrines. So he says, I beseech you based on what you have already heard from me in this letter. Look with me, if you would, at the last verse of chapter 11. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him, are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I beseech you a strong exhortation, a strong wish, a strong invitation to listen to what he's going to say. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, a reference to other Christians. Now, Paul was in the city of Corinth when he wrote this letter, some 900 900 miles away from Rome, whether by land or by sea, but because the audience to whom he is writing is Christian, and Paul himself, of course, was a Christian, we recognize the use of this word brethren. And as I mentioned in our uh, presentation this morning, being, to, being a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ with someone is first level, first priority over ethnicity, over everything else. Those with whom we are one in Christ, we are indeed one with them. So I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, mercies implying pity. Or compassion. God's divine and extraordinary grace demonstrated in His love, as we see in the first 11 chapters. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies. Your bodies. Maybe when we first think about that, it seems a bit bizarre, but Paul did say to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6.20... For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, as Paul is speaking here, and he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye you present your bodies, that is a reference in a sense to our whole self. The word body draws our thoughts to the Old Testament sacrifices representing the totality of life and the activities of someone of which the body is in fact the vehicle of expression. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, of course the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life for us, but we are to live For him a living sacrifice, holy, that is pure, blameless, consecrated, acceptable, that is fully agreeable on God's terms, pleasing, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, your Rational service, your logical service. And of course, service being what it is that we're doing in obedience to the Scriptures. And be not conformed, fashioned like, conformed to the same pattern. Be not conformed to this world, the system of beliefs and values of this world, the thoughts and contemporary values form this world's moral atmosphere which is dominated by Satan we are not to be conformed to these things but we are to be what transformed metamorphosis a change on the interior that manifests itself all the way out to the exterior be transformed how by the renewing of your mind a renovating A rehabilitating, as it were, of your mind by the renewing of your mind. I'll be honest with you, I think sometimes we really lose track of this. Last summer I was able to teach at a camp and the majority of what I taught at that camp centered around this idea. You know, sometimes if we're not careful... Our entire lives are really not directed, as it were, by our minds. Directed more by our emotions, by our feelings, our sentiments. And that's not what the Bible lays out for us. When you read, especially Paul's epistles, Paul appeals to the mind. He appeals to knowledge that we get from the Scriptures as they are illuminated for us by the Holy Spirit, and that is supposed to be the driving force. In other words, as Christians, we don't allow ourselves to recognize certain emotions or feelings, and based on those emotions and feelings, we determine how we're going to think, and then by that we determine how we're going to act. The Scriptures say the contrary, that we are to control What is taking place in our mind and with our rationality and and with our knowledge of the Scriptures, we determine from the Scriptures how we're supposed to think. And in recognizing how we're supposed to think, that determines how we're supposed to act. And when we think correctly and we act correctly, we can expect that with time, our feelings and our emotions will be in line with that obedience. So Paul here is not saying that we need to renew our emotions. We need to renew our sentiments, our feelings. He's saying we need to renew our minds, our intelligence, our knowledge of the Scriptures with the aid of the Holy Spirit. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good, beneficial, perfect, the idea of completeness, Will of God, a determination, a purpose on the part of God for our lives. So here we've gone through these verses now, pretty much looked at them word for word. And what is our conclusion? They're pretty much saying exactly what we thought they were saying, aren't they? And we especially see this one word there in verse 1 where the scriptures say that this is our reasonable service. And is it reasonable? Hmm? This idea of a complete sacrifice? Let's consider the doctrine of ransom. We see in the scriptures that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his body for us. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 20 says, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So as we think about the reasonableness of what God is expecting of us in these two verses, we begin to recognize that Jesus Christ was sacrificed in our place, and in so doing, he paid a ransom for us. What is a ransom? Well, in that that particular time, a ransom was a price paid to buy back a slave or a prisoner. And oftentimes they were a slave or a prisoner because of debt. So it paid off that debt so that the person was no longer a slave or a prisoner. And so what the Scriptures are teaching us is that we were in that position. We had a debt that we could not pay and we were enslaved, we were prisoners, and the Lord Jesus Christ paid the ransom necessary to liberate us from that. That ransom was not paid to the devil. Don't listen to the charismatics when you hear that. God owes nothing to the devil, believe me. That ransomeness must be paid because of the righteousness of God. If God is perfect, He is perfect in all of His attributes which means he is perfect in his holiness and he is perfect in his righteousness. So where there is sin, there must be payment for that sin. This is a point I bring up a lot with Muslims. Are you a sinner? Yes, I am. Is God going to forgive your sin? I hope he does. If he's going to do that, how is he going to do that? No, He's just going to forgive me. No, 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 no. He's not just going to forgive you. Between us as people, we can just forgive each other because we are both sinful people. We are both sinners. Therefore, a consent on our part, a willingness, an act of volition on our part, constitutes forgiveness between us. But God is perfect. And if He's perfect in His mercy, He is also perfect in His justice. And where there is sin, there must be punishment, there must be payment for that sin. So I ask you again, how are you going to get forgiveness? That's really what makes the difference between the Christian faith and any other faith here on this earth. And so we recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ paid that price for us. The price paid was the suffering and life of Jesus Christ providing expiation through His shed blood. Christ's substitutionary death on the cross constitutes the most glorious and blessed truth of the Scriptures. Christ took our place in submitting Himself to God's divine punishment for sin, as we see in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And Christ was not content simply to pay a ransom. He became the object against which was demonstrated the just and divine wrath of God. He suffered our death, and He carried our sins. So is it reasonable that He would ask that we be a complete sacrifice for Him? It is beyond reasonable. What's unreasonable is when we ignore the tremendous sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ made for us. When we refuse to consider its implications... When we delude its significance and excuse our neglect of its importance. How dare we beg God to forgive our sins through the work of Christ on the cross, yet we maintain an attitude of wanting only to live for ourselves. The injustice is apparent and it's condemning. Given that all the spiritual riches that the Christian enjoys, thanks to God's compassion... It is logical to assume that the Christian owes God the highest form of service. So it's logical. It's reasonable that we would be that sacrifice, that complete sacrifice. And understand that this isn't speaking of service. It's speaking of our state of being. We are to continually be before God a complete sacrifice. Okay? So how do we do that? How can we be the complete sacrifice? That is what we see in verse 2. Verse 2 begins with this word, and. As Pastor Montoro was speaking earlier of those wonderful years that he and I spent together on the faculty of Heritage Christian School, tongue planted firmly in cheek, not because I didn't like being with him, but because that was experience. I was the English teacher for the high school. So I can say with confidence that this and that we see at the beginning of verse 2 is a conjunction. And oftentimes a conjunction does connect two independent ideas together. But that's really not what's transpiring here with the and at the beginning of verse 2. This and is indicating a continuation of thought. A means of accomplishing what has already been stated. So how is it that we are, that we can be that reasonable sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ? It is through what we see in verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's the formula. Now, what Paul is saying here, he also said, again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians chapter 4, where we were this morning. So why don't we take a quick look there. Go with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll more or less continue on from where Pastor Montoro left off this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17, the Scriptures say, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness and greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Now pay attention, these next three verses. That ye put off, concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in holiness, uh, in righteousness, and true Holiness. Now again, if you examine this with verse 2 of Romans chapter 12, you'll see that Paul is saying the same thing. So what is it that we must do? Paul gives the example here in Ephesians chapter 4 of how these people were before they got saved. Paul does that a lot in his epistles. Before you were like this, 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 and this. But now as Christians, you're like this, 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 and this. But yet this formula in the present tense is clearly one that Paul was giving that is supposed to continue throughout the Christian life. So what do we do? Well, very clearly, verse 22, we put off. That's the first step. It is a continual recognition of old, sinful, unscriptural thoughts, attitudes, and actions. So we are obligated, we are instructed as Christians to do that. I'm a sinner. I have a sin nature. I'm going to labor with this mess from now to the time I, I pass on to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that I will always need to be considering what is transpiring in my life that's not supposed to be transpiring. That's the first step. What's the problem? What's taking place What is evidencing itself in my life that is contrary to the Scriptures? That's step number one. And I'm going to make the decision that I must put that off. It's a determination. That's not good. That's disobedience. I'm not supposed to be doing that. Therefore, we will be putting that off. What's the next step? Renewing the mind. The searching of Scriptures to know and understand what they teach concerning things. Allowing the Holy Spirit to give comprehension as we understand in a systematic manner all that the Bible says concerning a certain subject. Now, let me ask you a question. When was, in fact, the last time that you noted a problem in your life, something that you knew was contrary to the Scriptures, so you actually sat down with your Bible with a concordance, maybe with a topical Bible, with a cross-reference Bible, and you endeavor to go through the Scriptures to find out everything that the Scriptures had to say about that particular thing. And then upon noting all that the Bible says about that particular thing, you looked at it and systematically organized it to know in your mind, this is what the Bible says about these things that I must put off. That is the renewing of the mind. And the fact of the matter is, we completely neglect this step. We know what we shouldn't be doing, and we know what we should be doing. But we completely ignore this essential step of going back to the Scriptures. If we've been in church for a while, we'll be inclined to say, well, I know what the Bible says about that. Okay, you have a general idea of what the Bible says about that. You might even be able to go to some verses that address it. But let's not neglect the fact that the Holy Spirit uses the Scriptures to influence us. The Bible is even referred to as water, washing us, helping us in the area of sin so that we can render our lives in obedience to the Scriptures. So this renewing of the mind is a vital part of what Paul is saying. We see what's wrong. We make the decision we're going to put that off. We come to the Scriptures and we examine with diligence completely what does the Bible say about this. And then the last part, the putting on, we make the decision to put into practice that which we have learned from the Scriptures, replacing the old sinful unscriptural thoughts, attitudes, and actions with new righteous scriptural attitudes, thoughts, and actions. And the extent to which we do that, that's the extent to which we will be that complete sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in conclusion, I am a missionary, so got to have a little missions application here. Let's use missions to see how we can apply chapter 2 excuse me, verse 2, so that we can render ourselves conformed to verse 1. Normally in missions we think about going, we think about praying, oh, and that really ugly third one there, we think about giving. What do we put off? How do we renew our mind and what do we put on in the area of going? Well, in the area of going, we need to put off selfishness, And a desire to do what we want to do. We need to put off fear and intimidation. We need to put off an inordinate desire for the status quo. We need to put off a neglect of what's transpiring in the lives of others. We need to recognize that these are not God's attitudes, these are not God's sentiments, so they should not be ours. Then we renew our mind with what the Bible says about God's will and His plan for our lives. How God wants our best. How His best is so much better than our best. How His goals and aspirations for us so exceed those for ourselves. We see in the Scriptures how God gives the necessary uh, talents and abilities for what He wants us to do. And how we can accomplish the qualifications in our lives. We go back to the Scriptures and we see the commandments for going We see the destination of the lost. We recognize, again, the means by which God wants to get that gospel to those people. So we put off the wrong attitudes in relationship to going. And we renew our mind with what the Bible says concerning these things. And we put on a desire to know and to accomplish exactly what God has for us a singular ardent desire to conform to God's mold for our lives and to be the witness that He would have us be. Now, maybe you're saying, Brother Mac, how do you put on a desire? Again, understand with me that the Holy Spirit works with us through our minds, and it is our minds that are to control our emotions and not our emotions that are to control our minds. That's the scriptural formula. When Paul dealt with people, he disputed with them on an intellectual level to convince them intellectually of what he was saying. And it was based on that knowledge that these people needed to respond. So we go to the scriptures and we see what they say about these things and we make the decision I will be a witness. If I'm going to be a witness, how am I going to do it? I'm going to make some decisions. I'm going to do this by way of track distribution. I'm going to start targeting people. I'll always have at least one person that I'm currently targeting, and I have a plan in place. Thursday night, I'm going to go by and see how he's doing and talk with him. And then Tuesday, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to try and open the Scriptures and begin explaining a little bit of the Gospel to him. And you have a plan in place. There's at least one person with whom you're working to give them the Gospel. That's putting on. You're making that decision. You're carrying that out. Let's think of prayer. We need to put off our attitudes of laziness in relation to prayer. Put off our questioning as to whether God is really listening. Put off our fear as to what God might require from us from our prayers. Put off our ignorance of what the Bible really says concerning prayer. Put that off. We're going to recognize what's not correct in our thinking about prayer. And then we're going to renew our minds with what the Bible says about prayer and its benefit in our lives. The different types of prayer, the examples of prayer in the Scriptures, how God uses prayer to help us to understand His will and that His ways are better, how prayer becomes the very fellowship for which we often yearn with the Lord. We renew our minds in what the Bible says concerning these things, to learn of the things for which we should be praying, to discipline ourselves to achieve the goals that we set for improving our prayer life, we go back to the scripture and we renew our minds with those scriptural principles. And then we put on. Okay, I've gotten rid of these bad attitudes about prayer. I see what the Bible says about it. This is now what I'm going to do. And we set about to institute prayer in our lives, not when we feel like it, but we put it into our lives that we are going to faithfully pray as the Scriptures expect us to pray. Giving. We put off feelings of greed and love for money and possessions. We put off feelings of selfishness and wanting to keep it all for ourselves. We put off indifference towards the needs of others. We put off the ignoring and neglecting of God's plan for financing His church and the propagation of His gospel around the world. We go to the Scriptures. We renew our minds with what the Bible says about God owning all things. And that all that we have comes from Him. We renew our minds about Scriptural principles concerning the financial support of God's work. Renewing our minds with the Scriptural principle that God is a debtor to no one. That giving is His way of imparting His blessings on us that giving provides a way for us to be significantly and substantially involved in the salvation of souls and the establishment of local churches, that much of what we will receive at the judgment seat of Christ will be dependent on our attitudes and actions concerning our own personal finances. We renew our minds, what the Bible says about this. And then we put on an understanding of stewardship, An understanding of biblical principles concerning finances and their use. We put on specific decisions as to how we're going to render our spending in conformance with God's will. We put on specific decisions as to how we can help those in need. We put on specific decisions as to how we will render ourselves obedient to God in our giving to our church and to missions because it is His money. So, as we conclude tonight, and again, we read these verses, "...I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service." Let's not resist this. Let's embrace this. Let's recognize that we must be that sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ. He merits it. He bought us back. And upon recognizing that, okay, how can I be that sacrifice and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The continual exercise of putting off what's not right renewing our minds by what the Scriptures say, and then putting on what should be transpiring in our lives, that is the means by which we can maintain our lives as a complete sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful this evening for the privilege, for the honor, for the liberty of opening the Scriptures this evening to see what they have to say, and to determine how we need to apply them to our lives. And Lord, we've taken a challenging passage tonight, a passage that implies 100%. And Lord, we recognize that our flesh does not respond appropriately to that, and if we're not careful as we read these verses... We can begin immediately to develop a certain defense in our mind against them. But, Father, we recognize that any reaction on our part, any negative reaction on our part to your word, is by definition an unbiblical reaction. And, Lord, we realize that in spite of how our flesh responds, we must embrace this concept of being a complete sacrifice. For you, because in being a complete sacrifice, Father, we simp- we certainly will then be about accomplishing that which you have for us to do. And Lord, as we've looked at verse two and seen that formula, we can begin to understand how we keep our lives in that complete sacrifice state, constantly putting off what is incorrect, inappropriate, unbiblical constantly renewing our minds concerning these things and then putting on the appropriate things, Father, the biblical things, to render our lives in conformance with your Scriptures. Lord, we beg of you this evening to impress the importance of this on our hearts, to motivate us, and to draw us to do that which we need to do in light of these two verses. And Lord, we pray this in your name. Pastor Montoro, if you'd come.